This is the weekend that things usually typically get scary. Someone around you, near you, maybe you are dressed in a way that is scary, right? I thought about wearing something scary to impress you this morning, but I'm all out of green and gold. Okay. All right. So, I don't know. Do we have any fans here today, this morning? Oh, Jereen, you are, you are almost by yourself. It's a good thing the fellowship is warm. And Okay. <laughs> We're a forgiving lot. Okay. So, uh, scary. Oh, another scary thing. Anybody see or hear any barking cats recently? Okay. That was introduced last Sunday. Perhaps you weren't here to hear about the or see the barking cat. I would also put in the column of scary. Never seen that, heard that, don't care to. Uh, oh, one more thing. I know somebody was at uh, our house on Monday night and left a couple of really nice lawn chairs and told me that they would get them later or whatever because some of you sitting on them. And no one said anything about it, and I thought there were Jeffs, and Jeff says no. So if, if, if the real owner doesn't show up, I'm going to keep them because they're nice. Oh, they're yours, Mitt. Okay. <laughs> All right, good. I knew if I said that. I thought for sure Jeff said that. You said it to me. All right, sorry. I don't know what happened there. That was also a scary moment. Okay. Maybe you had another scary moment this past week. It has nothing to do with lawn chairs. Perhaps you had a moment where your behavior was inconsistent with who you are as a Christian. Ooh, that was a big transition, wasn't it? Uh, perhaps you had a moment where things didn't quite, uh, you know, line up. Well, this morning, we're, we're diving deeper into 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to dive right into a couple verses that are very key to our understanding of where Paul is going through the rest of chapter 1 and into chapter 2. Uh, he will make it very clear in no uncertain terms what's going on. So let's read those two verses together. Verses 17 and 18, for, Paul says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. There are many things, many distinctions in, uh, in Corinth in that culture that set the stage in the church in Corinth for divisions and disagreements in the church. Are you Roman or not? Are you Jew or Gentile? You're slave or free? You're man or woman? Are you a polished speaker like Apollos or not so polished and plain Jane like apparently Paul is, like what he was talking about? All sorts of things that may be perfect grounds for the church to begin to dividing. And that's where Paul starts as he addresses the the uh, Corinthians, he cuts through all the noise and all the debate and all the things that could be brought up, and he gets right to the point, especially in verse 18, and it really comes down to this. Not just are you dividing over something, but are you perishing or are you being saved? That's what's most important. Think about yourself right now. Are you on a path towards personal destruction or are you following Jesus into fuller, redeemed life in him? Do you know what path you're on, and do you know where that path is going? Every year, well, pretty much every year, I do a little um, 
destination run, as I call it, because it gets super boring running around Rosemont, and you can see why. So every once in a while, I take more time, drive somewhere. Uh, every fall, I go to Northfield. There's this beautiful arboretum that is north of Carleton College, just on the north side of, of the town, and I try to hit it at peak color. I missed it this year. This is a picture on my run. And then every once in a while, because there's hundreds of acres there in this arboretum, follows the river and, and through the woods and, you know, out open prairie area, uh, it can get, it's so big, it can get a little sort of confusing because the paths crisscross and they go all over the place. A couple of years ago, I got a little cocky and I thought, I'm going to take a different route on my run. That wasn't this fall, but a couple of years ago, took a different route and I wound up in a place I had no idea where I was. They don't have a whole lot of signs on these trails. There's a few of them here and there that are really small, but for the most part, there are no signs, so you'd better know where you're going. I came out on this gravel road. Usually I can grab my bearings. You know, I'm fairly good with a, with a map and understanding where I am in the world, so, uh, so I get a little cocky every once in a while. So I came out on this gravel road, and I'm looking around, I have no idea. And it's kind of humbling when you get that confused so I just, keep, I just keep going, which by the way, uh, FYI, if you're lost, children, whatever, or if you're childlike, don't keep going, okay? Because it's harder to be found if you keep going. But I'm an adult, I can do this, I keep going, fi finally figure out where I am in relation to the town and take another couple miles to get back across this guy's bean field, and it must have looked really weird. But eventually I found my way back. Now, the, the point, and I didn't get lost this fall. I took this picture on the way out. But the point is, you see two different paths there, right? I'm at a fork in the road, a Y in the, in the path. And there's no sign. So on this path near Northfield, you'd better know where you're going, or you're going to spend a whole lot more time out there because the area is that big. So this morning, we're going to consider where are we going, what path are you on? Paul gives us some signs to follow in this passage so that we can, as he says in verse 26, chapter 1, consider your calling. That's what, he, what he's really getting at. Consider where it is you're going. So before he gets into the weeds of the details of the problems in the church, immorality, the sin that's going crazy, all that other stuff, before he gets into all that, you need to consider where you're going. Before you think about anybody else or the problems you need to address, consider your personal calling, the path that you are on with Christ. So here's where we're going to do this. We're going we're to understand where he's taking us from uh, verse 18 on into the beginning of chapter 2, and here is the general outline. The path of the calling of Christ begins with a dis, okay, then goes on to the dilemma, the despised, and then it finishes with a demonstration. Alliteration runs amok this morning. You can feel the rhyming taking place. It'll all be memorable, right? You don't even have to write it down. It'll stick in your head. Well, maybe not. Anyway, so we begin with a diss. Nobody talks diss anymore, do they? Does anybody, does anybody say that? Is it kind of an 80s thing? That's kind of where I'm at sometimes. A diss, showing disrespect. You see it all the time. If you watch any football today, which many of us will, You'll, you'll, at some point in the game, maybe numerous times in the game, you'll see somebody get blasted as he's running or catching the ball, and the, defense, the defensive guy knocks him down. And then what, what typically happens, right? The diss starts. It's just right on the edge of taunting, because you can get a flag right now. 
but you see the flexing and the pointing and then the getting in the face, right? What is that? It's showing disrespect. I got you, I schooled you, right? So we're used to seeing that in sports. There's all sorts of other examples when it comes to dissing. I know that some of you are writers. I know Danny's a writer. So if you're a writer, maybe you'll appreciate this. This comes from uh, Mark Twain. Everybody heard of him? He's been dead a long time, American humorist. He said this in response or in reference to somebody he's talking to. He says, yours was not in the beginning a criminal nature, but circumstances changed it. At the age of nine, you stole sugar. At the age of 15, you stole money. At 20, you stole horses. At 25, you committed arson. At 30, hardened in crime, you became an editor. Okay? Right? That's a good one. If you're, all right, here's a nastier one. Uh, if you're familiar with Winston Churchill, he got away with saying all sorts of stuff. There was a day that he went into the House of Commons drunk, which wasn't unique. He drank a lot. There was another person in the House of Commons, a woman, who pointed it out. She dissed him. You're drunk. Now, to many people, that might slow him down, but not to Winston Churchill. So he looked at her without missing a beat, and he says, I may be drunk, miss, but in the morning I'll be sober, and you'll still be ugly. <laughs> Ouch, right? Now, I'm not endorsing that as a way to talk to people, okay? But he got away with it, and that is a diss, is it not? So, harsh examples. Paul lays down some disrespect, not to individuals, but to a way of thinking. And as we saw in the book of Galatians, when we went through that, Paul speaks his mind. There's no passive aggressiveness in Paul. He speaks directly to what is going on. And he exclaims in verse 20, I have it on the slide, yes. He says this, here's the diss. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish, you wise guys? <laughs> in other words, the wisdom of this world. He doesn't diss any singular person. The diss is directed at who? It's more like what? The wisdom of this world. Even uh, the wisdom of the world doesn't stand up to what it is that Paul is proclaiming about the message of Christ. And he goes on, for, verse 21, since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And now he's getting into the thick of it. The disc goes both ways, okay? The wisdom of the world is saying a certain thing about what Paul is preaching, but Paul is throwing it right back at them. What we have in Christ is different and better than what the wisdom of this world is talking about. And he, and he even calls, it's, it's, we have these words foolish, and, and Paul's calling it folly. Another way to say folly is it's a dead end. It, you, what you've been thinking about, what you've been accepting, Corinthian church, from the world, it's folly. Why is it folly? It's an absolute dead end. It goes nowhere. It seems so right it filled your minds. It helped to direct you in the path that you're going. These wise guys, they led you in that direction, the, philosophy, the philosophers of the age, but they've lost the argument. Compared to Christ, they've lost it. It's a dead end. Jesus has won through the cross, which brings us past that diss 
to the ultimate dilemma. So let's read about that. Verses 22 through 25. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and, Gen- and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What's the dilemma about? Well, it's not about philosophers. It's not about the ancient Greeks. It really isn't. It really boils down to this. He's talking now to the church, remember that, and he's, he's getting in their faces and, and he's saying this, what is it that you really want? When it all boils down, all the different voices and all the different op, uh, options or opportunities uh, that could direct your life or define your life, what is it that you really want? In comparison to the wisdom of the world, Paul offers Christ. But he, before he gets to that point, he, he gets into the details of the Jews and the Greeks. So the Jews, what do they want? What do they really want? They demand signs. Give us more proof, they would say to Paul as he preaches. The signs, the wonders, uh, the evidence, building on the prophets of the original Testament. Give us more signs. The Greeks, they want, they seek wisdom. Your teaching, Paul, about Christ, it better compare or even be more elevated compared to the philosophers that we believe. It better stand up to the test in the way that we think and the way uh, that we argue, the rhetoric of the day. It better be at least as good, if not better than that, or we're not going to give you the time of day. That's what Jews want. That's what Greeks want. And then Paul comes back to them. And Paul isn't an anti-intellectual. He doesn't try to dumb things down. And he certainly isn't avoiding what it is that is most important in life. If anything, Paul is overwhelmingly what? Pro-Christ and his cross. So what does he emphasize? We preach Christ crucified. This is an idea or a term that we're familiar with. We grow a little, maybe a little uh, numb to as far as the impact of what it is that Paul's saying. He's laid out what Jews want, what Greeks want. And then the stark con- contrast to what he's just said is that we preach Christ crucified. Why is that such a big deal? Well, let me try to set this up for you. Uh, this past summer, Jennifer and I went on a vacation. We went to Washington, D.C., never been there before. It was one of the bucket, thi- bucket list things uh, that I've always wanted to do. And one of the first things that we did is we went through the Holocaust Museum. Has anybody been through that? A, a few of you have. Wow, does that make an impact? We spent a few hours there walking through and seeing the different displays. And I still remember as you first walk in, they let in you know, large groups at a time, they have signs and, and they tell you, please keep silent. You know, and this isn't a place to horse around for young and old, whatever, if you're going with a group, don't be yakking and, and ruining the experience for other people. Makes sense. Well, here's the deal. Even with a bunch of people, and as we first went in, it was basically shoulder to shoulder. There are people everywhere as we were going in. They didn't have to do that because of the impact of what it is that you're seeing and hearing 
the displays, the video, leading you through the early 1930s, all the way through the 1940s, and all of what the Nazis did in Europe. And you see it, and some of the things are hand-on things, and some of the, ah, the impact isn't something you laugh about, and it isn't something you just idly kind of pass by, or, or, you know, or you get distracted with your family or whatever. You don't see anybody doing that. And you don't just kind of talk about it in frivolous ways either. There is a, the impact, the weight of what it is that you're taking in grabs you. So I, was, I think that is a, a, at least a beginning of a comparison to what it is that Paul was addressing with the Corinthians and the weight and the significance of talking about the cross and Jesus crucified. You don't just talk about that, or you don't laugh it off. It's not just casual conversation. There's an impact when you bring up a, a well, at the time, well-known uh, focus of Roman torture and execution. And some people possibly have even walked past and seen someone who has been crucified and still struggling for life. That makes an impact, which is exactly why the Romans perfected that way of torture and execution. Anybody passing by sees that, and they will not forget, you do not mess with the Roman Empire. People then would hear crucifixion and maybe have different responses, but the impact on that word, cross, is something that you do not take lightly, and you don't just idly chatter about. It's a big deal. Paul brings up and brings our focus and the Corinthians' focus to we preach Christ crucified, executed by the Romans. There is no doubt he was stretched out and he died in a brutal, torturous way. So Paul brings us back. What about the Jews? Well, to Jews, it's a stumbling block. That's where we get the English word scandalous. Of course it's scandalous to the Jews. How, how in the world does he preach to Jewish people who would consider the cross a scandalous curse? That's what it's called in the original Testament. Cursed is anyone hung on a tree. You want, if I'm a Jew, you want me to believe that our Messiah was crucified? Are you kidding me? Of course it's a stumbling block. You just don't go there. You don't talk about that kind of thing, the impact of it. And that was for the Jews. For the, for the Greeks, anybody who wasn't a Jew, the cross is a joke. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Wait, I wouldn't even talk about it. I wouldn't even consider that. Guy was crucified as folly. They consider it folly. That's a dead, he died, literally, on the cross. That's, that's a dead end thing. But the wisdom of the world, Paul is directing our attention to, is powerless to address life's greatest need. Even though right now at this moment, as he's arguing with it, doesn't make sense. He's saying the cross represents something that nobody could have guessed. Nobody would think of. The cross represents the power and the wisdom of God. Really? That? What we put up every Sunday that we get used to seeing? That could be the power and the wisdom of God? But God has done something through the cross that is naturally, as you could understand, rejected and looks foolish 
unless, unless the Spirit of God opens your eyes to see its truth and its power. So Paul brings our attention to a bloody cross, and in it, he is leading us along here to find the power of God for those who really need it. So we're moving on to his comments about those who are despised. Let's read on. For consider your calling, brothers, which is what we're doing right now. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. This massive, great reversal has taken place that Paul now leads us into. Now, uh, scholars disagree, you know, the, the makeup of the church in Corinth, what, what was it exactly? You know, some stress uh, what Paul seems to stress here, not powerful, uh, not of noble birth, not wise according to worldly standards. So maybe there were a number of people there that were not uh, thoroughly educated as some, uh, didn't have the kind of elevated status in the city. They certainly weren't part of nobility. But Paul also says not many and not many. He says that how many times? Three or four different times. He says not many. So other scholars emphasize that, that there's probably a wide mix of people in the Corinthian church, and that's kind of where I land. It wasn't just one set of people. It wasn't just a certain class. There were Jews and Gentiles and a wide mix of people in the Corinthian church. But that being said, Paul says in verse 30, he says, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and, and forward. So Paul throws himself in with the us, and the you is also plural. He's talking to the whole church together, no matter what your background is, was, no matter where you came from, no matter how you were measured by the world, no matter what you think you know, no matter what philosophies or understanding or teaching or, or education, doesn't matter. We're all us at this point. We're all in the same boat together when it comes to what Jesus has done and what he can do in you and to give you, in Christ, something to boast about because of what he's done for you. What has he done for you? He's made you right with God. He's sanctified you. He's set you apart from whatever it was your sinful background was, and he's redeemed you. So no matter what you believed, you are now something different. One of the scholars I read this past week says this very simply, in the cross of Christ, God affirms nothings and nobodies. It's true. That is exactly what Paul is telling us. A great reversal has taken place. No matter who you are, if you consider yourself a nothing and a nobody, no longer. Christ has elevated your position because of his love and, and the gifts that he has given to you. So, two ways that great reversal looks. And it covers all of us, just like it covered the Corinthians centuries ago. 
some of us realize our need quickly, are already humbled by life. And, and pick, you know, pick your tra- uh, um, tragedy, pick your challenge, pick anything that you've been through that can have that humbling effect. It brings us some of those things that we've been through, some of these things you've been through have brought you to your knees and you understand very quickly your need for Christ, while others resist it first because there's something that they consider they have to boast in, that they have a firm grip on that elevates me, that gives me understanding and meaning and a place in life. Uh, Typically, that's where a lot of us are at in suburban American culture today. We have so much to boast in, to find confidence in, that we think we've arrived, and why will we need Jesus? And that's where, well, a lot of us have needed to be humbled, to begin to realize my boasting is in vain. It goes nowhere. It's folly, like what he said earlier. I cannot save myself. And all these things that I trusted in, they're they're transient. They disappear. They go away. They rot. Money and wealth and stock market and whatever it is, it only lasts so long and it's gone. And then what? What do I have? That humbling effect that brings me back to, not to boast, but to understand the grace of God through Christ on the cross is also there for me. So let's recap. A believer on this path, following these signs, understands that the disc, the worldly wisdom, is a dead end. It's folly. It goes nowhere. It cannot supply what I truly need. The dilemma, it's Christ and his cross. Christ crucified and nothing else. The despised, well, it's the great reversal. No matter where I've been or what I've done, Christ is enough for me. We sang earlier before I came up, your grace is enough. We repeated it numerous times, and I hope as you sang it and as you heard others sing it, it begins to sink in with you too. If you've doubted that the grace of God is enough for you, no matter what your level of humility may or may not be, it is. God's grace is enough to find us where we're at, to meet us and to raise us to the level of sanctification and redemption. One more aspect of this path that we dare not leave out and that really uh, sets the stage for where we're going next week. And that is the demonstration. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And I, Paul says, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Very important that we understand where Paul is now taking us. He admits, sometimes we like to believe biblical characters, people from the Bible were that somehow floated around and they were perfect in every way and, and totally amazing in what they did. And Paul is admitting he's not that person <laughs> to us. Apollos and others, there are many people that speak better, that are, uh, come across in a better way. He's just him. <laughs> the power isn't in his ability to impress them or even us today. All he has to offer 
is the greatest thing he could offer. Jesus Christ and him crucified. What is the source of life-changing power? Not just in, in the Corinthian church. What is the source of life-changing power in your life? That's where I want to close with this morning. There are all sorts of traditions, religious tr traditions, Christian church traditions, that kind of try to fill in the blank as if Christ isn't enough. If only there was more emotion, or if only there was more intellectual status, if only there was something else, right? Because I need something else. I need to feed on something else. I need to be attracted to something else. Now, if Paul were here preaching today, he wouldn't, he, I think he would be quick to say, none of that matters, and none of it comes close to Jesus Christ and him crucified and the power that we have because of the cross and a living God who is alive in us. What does Paul say? There is a demonstration of the spirit and of power that is at work in believers. Now, what does that mean? Well, he's not talking about more signs and wonders because he already said to the Jews and the Gentiles, it's not about that. So don't think there's going to be this fantastic show because Paul showed up and there's something else to feed on. There's something else you can get, right, that fills that, that void religiously, your faith. It's not there. He's not contradicting himself. But he is emphasizing that the Holy Spirit demonstrates his power at work through changed lives that are constantly still changing. And that kind of finishes where we were going this morning. That path that I mentioned at the beginning, it is still moving. We're still being saved in that sense. So I'm not saying, and Paul isn't saying that your, your salvation isn't complete, uh, that uh, what Christ did isn't enough. There's no, he's not introducing some, some way to, oh, am I saved or not? He's not saying that. The power is perfected and made clear as you continue on the path of salvation, as you continue to move forward in your life by faith. What you need in that life experience is the power of God through the Holy Spirit in your life. So the recap, the disc, worldly wisdom, it's a dead end. No matter what you took in, it's not enough, and it'll leave you empty in the end. The dilemma, it's Christ and his cross. Nothing else added to it. There's no cross plus. There's no Jesus plus something else. The gospel is sufficient. His grace is enough. Christ reverses. You are despised without Christ. And he reverses that so that you now gain everything that God offers. And now the demonstration of a living God isn't in more signs and wonders and spiritual anything else. Although God does amazing things at times, what is the most amazing thing that he's done is he's brought you, believer, from death to life. How? Because of his love. Were you worth it? Were you so important, so amazing? Just like what he told to the Jews, don't just because I love you. Just because God loves you, you have everything that God has to offer. Every day, I heard this recently, I don't know who said it. Every day we can rejoice and find confidence and find hope and joy because every day for a believer without a shadow of a doubt is a day closer to Jesus. Every day gets better because our hope is secure 
in God. Every day we're closer to seeing him face to face. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Think about that. Living God, we get to see Jesus. I know his scars are still there. Sometime in the future, I believe we'll be able to see him and reach out and see the scars that he still bears because of his love for me. Every day is a day closer to that. So how can I not give him all? How can I not surrender to a love like that that gives me everything and ask for nothing just to accept and believe? That's Jesus. The power of God is demonstrated in me as I live in that hope, as I embrace that love, and as I continue to share it with others, God is glorified and new things continue to happen. Do you have that kind of a walk with him? Everything else we're going to talk about in Corinthians, let me say this, next week we'll get more into the the power of God through the Holy Spirit working in us because Paul establishes that at the very beginning of his letter. You've got to have that. You've got to understand that path you're on before you even want to address all the problems. That make sense? There's all sorts of other issues, but you've got to look at them in light of who you are in Jesus. That's what Paul does. Are you aware of that today? Yeah, you may have had some barking cat moments, literally, this past week. Maybe not literally, but you may have had some of those moments. Okay, join the rest of us. Get back on the path. We've got the signs. We know how to find it. Live in the power of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're grateful for this new life that we have, the power of new life, resurrection power, the same power we know Scripture tells us that that brought you out of the grave now uh, resides in us, and we are not ashamed of that. We are not ashamed of that. Live in us in a new and powerful way for this week so that we would be bold in our proclamation of you. And even more so, uh, more importantly, that we would trust in the power of God that is sufficient. Your grace is enough, like we've sung, but we know, Lord, you're sufficient for everything we will face this day and this week. Live in us with that kind of power, and we'll trust in you all the more wholeheartedly every step of the way. In Jesus' name, amen.